0: I'm Michelle Anna Hoff, and a half, and I'm part of the Brinston Life Group, led by Mark Walter. Um, I'm the newest member of me and my husband, so I can safely report that if more of you want to come, it's it's good. So um, please join us if you're in Brynston. Um I'll read from Acts 3 now.
1: Why don't you just join me in a word of prayer before we come to that text. Father, we come to you this morning as spiritual beggars and cripples, relying entirely on your mahao to us. We pray that you will meet us in the person of your Son and the power of your Spirit and draw us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are resuming a series in Acts that we actually began last year, so uh, it's worth us just refreshing our memories as to what has happened so far. After his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples over 40 days and he proclaimed the kingdom of God to them. He then instructed them to be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth, and then he ascended to his father's right hand to rule over the kingdom. After he ascended, his spirit descended upon the church to empower her and to gift her for this task of witness. And on that first Pentecost day, Peter stood up, empowered by the Spirit, and he witnessed to the Christ boldly. 3,000 were saved. They formed part of a new community who were devoted to love and truth, truth and love. Love for their God, love for each other, love for those who did not yet know the King. That's as far as we got last year. If you remember, in every passage, in every single passage, we were reminded that this book is about the acts of God through his apostles in the power of his Spirit. To paraphrase the very first verse of Acts, if the Gospels were about all that Jesus began to do and teach, Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach, by his Spirit, through his apostles. So what we're going to see today is really a continuation of where we left off last year. Jesus is at work in this first community. And because he's at work, the people are different in some very interesting ways. They are marked off by certain distinctives. We want to see what those distinctives are. And we want to ask ourselves repeatedly... We're going to ask this question over and over and over again. Are we that sort of people? Are we that sort of people? What did Jesus' work in this first church family look like? What kind of people were they? Let me give at least five marks. Five marks of this first church family. They were a prayerful people, straight from our text. And at least these five. A prayerful people, a compassionate people, a Jesus people, a saved people, and a praising people. Prayerful, compassionate, a Jesus people, a saved people, and a praising people. Those five. Question for us, are we? Firstly, a prayerful people It's a very simple fact, but worth noticing. Verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. That wasn't unusual because Peter and John were part of a transformed people who devoted themselves to prayer. You can read all about that in Acts 2. Private prayer, public prayer. This was a people devoted to prayer. And it makes perfect sense if you stop to think about it. They had been reconciled to their God by the blood of his son. Of course they would want to speak to him. Think of the prodigal son after he spent... Years in that foreign land, blowing his inheritance in wild living. He ended up face down in that pig trough. Only to be welcomed home, to be embraced by his father. Welcomed home with open arms. After he got over the shame of his own behavior and the shock of his father's welcome, do you think he wanted to talk to his dad? There is nothing he would have wanted more than to talk to his father. You see, Jesus didn't just win forgiveness of sins. He won access to the Father. In fact, forgiveness of sins is a means to that end. He won us access to the Father. Who wouldn't want to make the most of that access? Peter and John did. The first church did. Do we? Do we recognize the precious gift that we have in prayer? You can talk to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit any time, day or night. As Tim Keller puts it, the only person who dares to wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. You have that kind of access. Let's use it. Let's pray without ceasing. Come to our termly prayer meetings. They're such a joyous occasion. Come to our termly prayer meetings. Pray in your life groups. Insist on prayer in your life groups. Pray in the morning when you wake up. Pray in the evening when you go to bed. Pray in between. Sung worship, singing, is a form of prayer. So let's let's come to church on time. Let's be here early so that we can all participate in this precious gift together, rejoicing in our Father as we sing his praises. Sunday by Sunday, let's pray in song and let's pray with whoever is leading us in prayer, like Martin was this morning. Bear in mind prayer is a bit like meal times. So the toast you had for breakfast barvel toast, God forbid. It may not have been spectacular or memorable, but you need it, and it's keeping you alive. That's prayer. It's not always going to feel spectacular or memorable, but you need it. It keeps you alive. In the same way that ordinary communication keeps any relationship alive, Spurgeon said that if breathing in is reading your Bible, then prayer is breathing out. You need it. It keeps you alive. Jesus made that first church a prayerful people. He also makes them a compassionate people. Look at verse 2. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering into the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, it's worth us asking why this man was laid at the entrance of the temple, right at the gate. I mean, it's obvious, but why is it obvious? Why would they put him there? Why, Why would he get more money there? Why not put him in the marketplace where there would have been a lot of traffic or at some busy intersection? Why at the gate, the entrance of the temple? They put him near the temple because the presence of this imposing religious building would have acted as a major motivator to giving. People would have given, either out of guilt, some form of penance, guilt for their sin, or they would give to gain spiritual merit before God as they enter into his presence, or maybe they gave to be seen by other members of the religious community. Of course, any one of those motives is transactional. It has very little to do with the man himself. In fact, people might even chuck money in his bowl without even making eye contact because the transaction is not about him. Not so with the apostles. Verse 4 Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. It's eyeball to eyeball, it's deeply personal. To look someone in the eye is to disregard any shame or station in life and to acknowledge their humanity. This wasn't about penance or merit or the favor of the religious community. This was about compassion for another human being. From his mother's womb and for the next 40 years, this man suffered with legs that just would not work. And then he suffered the indignity of having to beg just to stay alive. And then people used him. They used him to appease their own guilt. To try and merit favor with God. To win some sort of status in the religious community. But Peter and John, they showed compassion. And they showed compassion because they came from a people of compassion who were formed by the King of Compassion. What was true of that first church remained true of the early church until at least the fourth century. Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official faith of the Roman Empire in around 300 AD. It wasn't a universally popular decision. In fact, within two generations, his grandson, Emperor Julian, was trying to reverse that decision, but he was running into a problem. And so he writes to his pagan high priest, Osasius, complaining, it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Christian compassion was so striking, so outstanding in that culture, that it became an embarrassment to the Emperor of Rome. The first church was marked by compassion. The early church was marked by compassion. Are we? Are we loving people, truly loving them, not as religious projects? but as human beings stamped in the image of their creator. Now I know how it can feel. I know it can feel completely overwhelming because there's just a tidal wave of need in our context. But remember, we are not called to save the world. That job is already taken. We are simply called to do what we can. To help the one in front of you. Our king is the king of compassion. And one day he is going to make everything right. And in his kingdom, no one will be left behind. Here's the thing. He's already brought us into that kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom, of that coming kingdom where no one will be left behind. So that means the work can start today. It can start even now. We can start making things right now. We can try and help those who are being left behind? That's right at the heartbeat of what Mahao is. You heard all about Mahao this morning. Why not get involved? You have a leaflet there on your seat. Simple steps, small steps, but significant steps. Why not get involved? Why not get involved in the in the Love Trust? You can help to pay for a child from Tembisa to get a decent Christian education at Nokopila School. There's, there are sponsor of child programs, you can get involved there. If you don't have money, if things are tight, and we know they are tight in our context it's just at the moment. If you don't have the money, you can help with literacy programs. You can help by taking the time to read with the kids. You can help stock our pantry. So every month we have desperate people coming to us. Desperate people. And the small way in which we help is we give them a food parcel just to survive the month you can help you can be part of that one of the key avenues for compassion in our church is life groups now if you've only been with us a short time you may not know what a life group life group is it's just a small family unit where we really get to know each other i don't have to tell you it doesn't take a lot of getting to know someone before you know that they need help just like you need help life groups are where we show compassion for one another. If the world is to know us by our love, they're going to know us by the love that they encounter in our life groups. If you are not in a life group, please join one so that you can be an instrument of God's compassion to someone else and they can be an instrument of his compassion to you. We've been saved by the king of compassion. Let's be a people of compassion. That's the call in our lives. Thirdly, they were a Jesus people. That sounds painfully obvious, but it isn't. Remember, many of the Jews who gave money to the beggar were not Jesus people. They had other motives for giving. But notice what Peter and John have to give. Verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter and John had no money. What they did have to give is Jesus. This miracle is an act of his compassion. It's a demonstration of his power. Verse 7, he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Made strong by who? If you've got all of Acts 3 there, look at verse 16. Peter says it plainly. By faith in his name, the name of Jesus, this man was made strong. Jesus made the man strong. It's just one more reminder of the fact that the entire life of the early church was about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. The miracle was an act of Jesus Christ. That sounds obvious, but it isn't, even today. How many healing ministries are really about Jesus? I think it's probably fair to say that many, if not most, are about the gifts of the prophet or the apostle or the bishop. The name of Jesus might be mentioned as a kind of a magic word, but not in the way that Peter mentions it. When he says, in the name of Jesus, he is appealing personally to the character and power of the king. It has nothing to do with Peter himself. Nothing. Remember, as an apostle... He's merely a witness to the king. He's been sent by the king. That's what it means. He's just a postman. In fact, in Acts 10, when Cornelius falls on his face and tries to worship the apostle, Peter pulls him up says, stand up, I'm only a man. And then in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas heal another man crippled from birth, the local people gather around, they swarm around, and they try to worship them. The apostles tear their clothes They offer the same protest. Why are you doing these things? We are only men, just like you. How many of our so-called prophets and apostles would do that? If you fell at their feet, are they going to tear the Armani suit? (laughs) Refuse the glory? Insist that it goes to Jesus instead? I wonder. And what about us? Are we a Jesus people? Are we fully, wholeheartedly convinced that all we truly have to offer the world of any lasting value is not our gifts or our service or our hard work or our sacrifices? The only thing of any lasting value we have to offer is Jesus Himself. Are we falling over ourselves to give Him the glory? We leave it as a question. This first church was a prayerful people, a compassionate people, a Jesus people. They were also a saved people. A man was crippled from his mother's womb. He was crippled before he could walk. He hadn't taken a single step, not one, in 40 years. Then Peter acted as a witness to the king, and in that moment, everything changed. Verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. It's a miracle. There's no other word for it. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural act of divine power and love. It's astounding. But it's still not all there is. In fact, the miracle is not even the point. The miracle points beyond itself to something greater. To an even deeper healing. Now, there's a whole number of reasons why I say that, but let me just give you three. Just bear with me. I want to give you these three reasons, and you'll see why in a moment. We want to see that this miracle points beyond itself to something deeper. First, the first thing this man does with his new life is to enter the temple praising God. Up to that point, he would have been banned from the temple by the Levitical Holiness Code. His deformity was a symptom of the brokenness of the world and the world was broken because of sin and sin can never enter the presence of God. And so this man would never ever have been able to enter the temple. The best he could do was to be laid by the gate. But here he is. He's walking, he's leaping, he's praising his way into the presence of God. This miracle points beyond itself. The second, pointed to something deeper, is a parallel story of another miracle in the ministry of Jesus himself that we read about in Luke's gospel. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to read from Luke 5 and from verse 18. Luke 5 and from verse 18. Remember, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. It's the same writer. It's a two-part volume, right, or two volumes in a single work. Luke 5:18. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they tried to take him into the house and lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, And went home praising God. Can you hear the echoes? It's the same story in so many ways. There's just one major difference. Jesus forgives the man's sin openly, explicitly. That's his priority. He heals the man's soul. He heals his alienation from God. And then to show that he has the authority to do it, he heals his body as well. That's exactly the point in our story. And it's the way Peter himself explains the meaning of the miracle as we read on in Acts 3. And that's the third reason I say this miracle is more than a physical healing. We're going to look at the details next week. But the climax, let me just give you the punchline of next week. The climax of Peter's explanation of the miracle is this. Verse 19. Repent therefore, so we're back in Acts 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. A man was trapped in his body for 40 years. Years. His body was a prison. And then he encountered the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, and in the next moment he was walking and leaping and praising God. It's a wonderful reality in itself but it also reaches beyond itself. It's also a picture of what happens inside each and every one of us when we encounter the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. From our mother's wombs, we are spiritual cripples and beggars. We cannot, we will not take a single step in the direction of God. And so he comes to us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to us, who is God with us, we are raised to life, and now we go rejoicing into the presence of our Father. Friends, miracles are a wonderful gift from God, make no mistake. But in this story, and in the Bible as a whole, they are never an end in themselves. They always point to something deeper. The healing of our relationship with God. And it makes sense that they should. Because everything that is broken in this world, our communities, our families, our bodies, is broken because of sin. Because of our broken relationship with God. That's why things are broken. Jesus is the great physician. The great healer. What kind of doctor deals only with the symptoms? You want to be rid of the disease. This miracle in Acts 3 is perfect evidence that Jesus deals with both. But because the disease will kill you in the end, that's his priority. Wouldn't you want that from your doctor? I ask, and I've been laboring this point, I'm sure you'll agree, I've been laboring this point because often it really does seem that that's not what we want. We actually want just a God who's going to deal with our symptoms. You know, I was at an awards ceremony recently, um, school, school awards ceremony, listening to this young lady address the kids. And I have to say I was so encouraged because she she was committed to sharing from the Bible, to encouraging them from the Bible. But the closer I listened and the longer I listened... The more I came to understand that she had a very different understanding of who God is and what he's come to do. And it goes a little bit like this. It's going to sound very familiar. It's very common. God has a plan for your life. It's basically the plan you have. But he might take you on a bit of a journey to get there. The place he's taking you is the place you want to go. We sometimes call it success. To get you there, he wants to help you grow your ambitions and overcome your limitations so that you can become the best version of yourself. Sound familiar? It was a confusing talk for me. (laughs) It's confusing because at a superficial level, there's nothing wrong with that. God does have a plan for your life. He does want you to become the best version of yourself. Here's the problem. The best version of yourself is not what you think it is. And so his plan is not your plan. Your plan doesn't go far enough. Doesn't reach deep enough. It's just playing around with symptoms. The best any of us can be is more like Jesus. Jesus. Our own individual, unique reflection of the king. That's the best any of us can be. And so God's plan with all of history, and if you want to read about this, go to Ephesians 1, God's plan for all of history is to take everything and place it under the saving lordship of the king. That's his plan for everything. And you and I, are part of everything. You see, our problem is, as I said, we just want to fiddle with the symptoms. But God wants to cure the disease. So you and I think what we need is the job or the promotion or the raise or the financial freedom. God knows that our needs go far beyond that. What we need is forgiveness and love and holiness, and true security, and purity, and character, and hope. What we ultimately need is God himself. And so he might actually take away the promotion, the raise, the financial freedom. For the sake of something more important... Just like any surgeon who is half a surgeon would be willing to cut the skin and the tissue and actually create a wound in order to remove a tumor. Do you see? It is precisely because God is so committed to our well-being and our flourishing and our true success that His plan is not our plan. In fact, one sign of true health is when our plans begin to change. Our plans themselves begin to change. They begin to slowly and with time and by degree look more like his plan. We begin to want to submit to Jesus more than anything in life and in every corner of our lives. We begin to actually sacrifice the things that were once absolutely critical to our plans. We're willing to let them go. Because we know that his plan is so much better. And we trust him. We trust him. We can thank God that his plan goes deeper, it reaches further. Just think about the cripple in our story. 40 years old. It wouldn't be unusual in that time to... Die within 10 years of this healing. What kind of cruel joke is this miracle if the whole point is that you get 10 years of walking to go with your 40 years on the floor? The same is true of Lazarus. What's the point of rising from the dead just so you can die again a few years later? What's the point of a financial windfall if we're going to be back in debt in six months' time? What's the point of God giving you a successful career if in 10 years after you have retired, no one at your company even knows your name? It's not that those are not good things. They are. It's just that death has a way of undoing them, of mocking them, of sucking any life or meaning or purpose from them. And so the Apostle Paul says, and listen carefully to what he says, because he says it so directly. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see what he's saying? If, he's saying that if God is in your life just to deal with the, your daily affairs, the matters of this life, if he's just there for that, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. If we worship a God who only deals with symptoms, well then we might as well eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's pitiful. The wonderful news of Acts 3, of the scriptures, of all of God's witness to us, of all of his word to us, the wonderful news is that we serve a God who cares about the symptoms He does care about the symptoms. He cares even more about the underlying disease. He deals with both. That's what this miracle testifies to. He deals with both. What Jesus does through Peter for this man is a picture of what he was doing in the souls of those first believers. They truly were a saved people. Question. Are we? Or do we just want God to manage our affairs while we get on with the plan? Do we just want Him to play around with the symptoms? Finally, the people who interacted with Jesus were appraising people. Look at verse 9. And all the people were filled with wonder. Question Are we? They were full of wonder. Do we wonder? Do we wonder at what God has done, both big and small? The the word that Luke uses in the original is where we get our word ecstasy. Are we ecstatic when we dwell on what God has done, on his goodness to us? Recently, I had a conversation with a man who was just, I mean, he was ecstatic He was just overflowing with thankfulness because the hospital caught his son's septicemia just in the nick of time. And he knew that was God's goodness to him. Overflowing with thanksgiving. Ecstatic. I watched another man go through eight rounds of chemotherapy that almost killed him. Just so that he could survive another two years. That was ten years ago. Now his whole life is a thank offering to God. He just got back from a mission trip to the Sudan. God is the God of miracles and we should praise him for miracles. And those miracles also remind us of the deeper salvation that he is working in each and every single one of us. Another friend of mine was saved out of drug addiction and womanizing of the most heinous kind. Now he's one of the most hardworking and gifted evangelists that I know. Another friend was saved from drinking a bottle of vodka a day. Nobody I know has a deeper sense of God's grace. Another friend was saved from worshipping money and career and the Josie lifestyle. And after he was saved, he spent the next five years working in a Christian shelter for street children. God is a God of miracles. He saves a people for himself. We should sing his praises every single moment we get. We're going to do that now. I'm going to ask the music team to come up and lead us in a song of praise. While they come up, won't you just join me in a word of prayer? Father, we, we wonder, we marvel at your goodness to us. We thank you for your son and for your spirit. We thank you for taking a people for yourself, this family called the church. Father, will you help us to see this great salvation for what it is and to be people who are walking and leaping and praising God every moment of every day. And as we worship you, transform us into a true Jesus people, a people of compassion and prayer. In his name we pray. Amen.